The scripture reading this morning comes from Romans 12, verses 11 through 13. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So good morning. It feels a lot different in here, doesn't it? (laughs) Welcome to two services, uh, which means the room is not nearly as full as it normally is. And that's a good thing because it means you have uh, the opportunity to invite your friends and your neighbors and people that you love to come and worship with us. So our hope is that in the months to come, we'll fill the room up. Not only at this time, but at the second uh, time as well. So we can't do that without you. So be, be aware of that and help us with that. The other thing is, um, we didn't mention it, but we are actually, in, in light of celebrating what God has done in our Renew Polk Network, next week we're taking a special offering just, to, just because there's, it's expensive to plant churches. And so uh, just be aware of that. Know that that's coming. Um, we, will, we will be doing that in the service next week. And then please do come next Sunday night. You may not know, but I actually serve as the executive director of Renew Polk, and so that's part of the work that I do beyond our church is just, is just to oversee those church planning efforts, and so it matters to me. And so I'd love to have you there with us next, next Sunday. So come. Uh, Patrick and Molly will be leading some of the worship, and I'll be talking, and it'll be a great time. Okay, Romans chapter 12. Uh, this is a very succinct passage that um, Gigi just read to us. Uh, and it's very, it's very unusual for us to only have just a few verses. So why uh, zero in on just these two or three verses? And we're going to do this for a number of weeks as we work through Romans uh, 12, 9 through 21. Uh, this part of Romans is really a to-do list. Uh, in the entire first part of the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, uh, 315 verses. In all of those chapters, there's only seven imperative verbs. In other words, only seven times does Paul tell us to do something in that whole part of the book? And yet here in Romans 12, 9 through 21, which is only 12 verses, I tried three times, and every time I lost count, somewhere around 25 imperatives. So in just these few verses, 25 times does Paul say, do this and do this, and oh, but don't forget this, and oh yeah, this too. And so something shifted in what Paul wants us to see in this letter. And what I would say to you this morning is, as we come to these verses I think part of what this means is that Christianity is an active lifestyle. These these verses, verses 11 through 13, are part of a unit that begin all the way back in verse 1 uh, with the statement, therefore, in view of God's mercy, do so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. And then he goes on to list out what what our lives should look like. And it's important to remember that. Remember, go back and remember where all this started with that statement in in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember that doing doesn't make you a Christian, as we talk about doing this morning. Mercy does. God's compassion and his faithfulness to us is the spring of everything else in Romans 12. Christians do not work to earn God's love. Christianity is grace. Amen? You with me? All that we have, God's love and his blessing and the promise of heaven, all of those things are ours because of the person and work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Christianity's grace, remember the gospel, but also know that grace may be opposed to merit, but it is not opposed to effort, as Dallas Willard used to say. And so zero in with me in verse 11 on the word fervent, because that's what I'm talking about. It means that word there to be hot or to be a glow. If you want another word, which is sometimes helpful to kind of define, the word I, 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 I use here is the word earnest. I love that word. When people ask me to describe our church, uh, and what I want us to be like, that's my word. Earnest. 
sincere, intense, thoughtful, right? Intentional. The Bible says if you're a Christian, you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's Matthew 3.11. You've been baptized with Holy Spirit and fire. Now, that's not talking about being temperamentally sanguine. Some of us are, and I, I envy you people because I'm not. I'm melancholy by nature. Not all of us are extroverts, not, you know, but all of us are on fire. In Revelation 3, it says, I mean, and this has just struck me in the last few weeks. It says uh, that it's better to be cold than lukewarm when it comes to your faith. Think about what Jesus said to that church. He said, I wish you were hot. But if not hot, then gosh, I wish you could be cold because being cold is better than just being casual. So if you're here this morning and you say, you know, I don't believe any of this stuff. Or, you know, I, I, just, I still know about this whole Christianity thing. I want to say, you're actually in a much better place than the person who says, I believe, but there's no fire. There's no enthusiasm. It's just half-hearted kind of going through the motions. And, and, the, and what I want to say to us this morning is this. There is, there is no such thing. There is no such thing as a Christianity that's not fervent. There's no such thing as half-hearted Christians because, and we have three reasons from these verses here, and here are the three, and we're going to walk through them quickly together. There is no half-hearted Christianity because, first, the world is hard, so you can't live half-heartedly as a Christian in the world. Secondly, because the Spirit is real, and the Spirit is doing something better and something greater and something more uh, expansive in us. And then thirdly, the reason that you can't live half-heartedly is the time is short. Okay, those three things. The world is hard. The spirit is real. The time is short. Now first, let's look at these together. There's no such thing as half-hearted Christianity because the world is hard. It's no longer home. We were made for paradise. Instead, we wander through the wilderness. That's Genesis 3. We've been kicked out of the paradise of God to wander east of that paradise in a, in a barren land. Norm Peterson, uh, and I'm going to show my age here. Uh, Norm Peterson, remember him, one of the regulars at uh, the Cheers bar? Uh, he would say, it's a dog-eat-dog world, and I'm wearing milk-bone underwear. I mean, that's, that's what it feels like in the world. That's what it feels like out there. There are brain-eating amoebas in the shallow waters of lakes, right? Something's really wrong in the world. The Bible says that the world has fallen, that it's broken, that it is now a place that is hostile to human flourishing because it's diseased. And the disease is what the Bible calls sin, that all of mankind... Led, all of creation, led by mankind, who was put in charge, is in open rebellion against God. Under our harsh rule, what was once a paradise has been turned into a wasteland. That's what we're dealing with. Now, so what is life like then in this place that I'm trying to describe? And you see it in our text, okay? You've got you to kind of dig a little bit in these three verses to see it. But Paul gives it a name, actually. Look there in verse 12. He says it's tribulation. And that really kind of captures all of what we experience. You're going to see this a lot, by the way as we read uh, Revelation in, in, in community Bible reading throughout the few, next few weeks. In Revelation 7, for example, uh, we read about the Apostle John describing those in heaven, uh, and he says that these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That's, John, that's Revelation 7, 14. And that doesn't just refer to a specific time period at the end of history, but it really is meant to refer to all of life in this world. John wrote that letter, it's really a letter, because he wanted to help Christians in the first century make sense of their experience in the world. They were being set on fire, these people, and used as candles at Emperor Nero's parties. So in Revelation 1, John 
writes to the churches, and I wish that I had had this uh, to, to splash up on the screen because it is such a, such a great uh, summary and description of, of the Christian life and of what John is writing about there. But he says this to the churches. He writes and says, I am a partner with you in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Perfect description. Tribulation and kingdom and therefore patient endurance. So, life is not a Corona commercial. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. There is no such thing in a fallen world. It's a mirage, and I use that word intentionally. They're trying to sell beer by selling a certain view of the world that is a lie and that will leave you scratching your head and wondering why everybody else seems to have it figured out and what you're doing wrong. Don't believe it. Paul's very clear that as Christians, we are to rejoice in hope, verse 12. Do you see that? Not be joyful in circumstances, but to look for happiness in a place, in a world that is still yet to come. I mean, this is something uniquely Christian that you see Paul calling us to here. He says, you know, if you're not a Christian, if you believe that this world is all there is, then you only have one shot to find happiness, and that's to find it here and so a non-Christian person is a Christian who really is to be joyful in circumstances because that's the only, really the only option they have, really trying to make a home in this world. But, but, but if the world is tribulation, if, the world, if, this is, if what we experience here more than anything else is, is tribulation, then, then that just doesn't do. And in fact, that's what Paul's saying in this world, tribulation. Now, actually, tribulation and kingdom, remember, Revelation chapter 11, and we should remember that, that the seed of the new world that is on the way has already been planted and it's growing in our midst and we experience some of its joy and some of its fruit. But for the Christian, the world is not just tribulation, it's tribulation and kingdom side by side and we shouldn't forget that. But the point I'm making is this, that the only way to live in a place that is hostile to your flourishing is to be fervent, earnest, intense, intentional, awake, alert. Use whatever word. I remember years ago, I, before, I did, uh, before I did this church planning stuff, I did a bunch of traveling. And one of the places I went, about a dozen times actually, I, I got to spend some time in India. And I remember the first time uh, that I landed, and this is a true story. You won't believe me probably, but it really is a true story. Landed in India. And whenever you go into India, you always seem to land at like two o'clock in the morning. And so you got to get to the hotel. And of course, it's a little dicey. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's kind of a scary place, and especially for your very first time. And so my first trip, we hopped in the back of a taxi, and I happened to be fortunate enough to be uh, traveling with a man who'd been there many, many times before. And he just told me, you know, one of the things he kind of prepared me for is you got to kind of keep your heads up uh, because these people will, you know, take advantage of you, and they know you're Western. And so just keep your, your head on a swivel, and, and we'll be okay. And so we get there, and the roads are desolate and we get in this cab with this guy and we're and we go and I, I kind of see my friend start to get really nervous and I, I'm thinking what's going on and he kind of looks over at me and says he's not taking us where I told him to take us and and he kind of warned me about this so we're driving in the cab this is my first experience in India okay we're driving in the cab on the way to the western really nice five-star hotel that we're staying in because it's a safe place and he realizes this guy's not taking us where we're supposed to be going and he's behind him in the car and he reaches up and grabs him around the neck. And he says, take us to our hotel. And the guy kind of balked and, you know, turned around and he took us where we were supposed to go. And I'll tell you, it changed the way I, I kind of thought about being in India. <laughs> you know what I mean? I kind of started to walk around and look around a little bit. 
it made me a whole lot more alert to realize this really is a place that is hostile to my flourishing. This can be a scary place. Uh, you know, it made me, you know, it made me, it made me stay awake when I was on the roads. It made me think, do I know where I'm going? And is, are the people that are driving me taking me where I'm supposed to be? And that really, the Bible says, stay awake, keep watch. You can't be half-hearted. You can't fall asleep. You can't, you can't stop for, for even a minute because there is sin that is crouching and there's a, an enemy that is prowling. And the world is hard. So there can't be, there's no such thing as half-hearted Christianity. But secondly, there's no such thing as half-hearted Christianity because not only is the world hard, but the spirit is real. So look there in verse 11, Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit or fervent in the spirit. And so if you're a Christian, the spirit lives in you and he is fire. But be careful here, okay? Don't imagine this means we soar through life. Sometimes we limp. There are times of abundance and times of leanness. There are days when you're ready to charge the gates of hell with a water pistol, and then there are days you can barely get out of bed. Our victory, the Bible says, is to endure. That's it. If you get to the end, you win. Amen? Doesn't, what, doesn't matter what place you come in. If you get to the end, you win. And that's, 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 you know, that's how this works. So don't hear me say that this means when I talk about being, you know, fire, and when I talk about the spirit being real, it doesn't mean that it's never hard. It's always hard. And don't hear me say that if you're feeling faint, you're doing something wrong. The point is that no matter how faint you might be feeling, you'll never lack for strength because the strength is not yours to begin with. We're told, in fact, what this fire of the spirit looks like in verse 12. Look there. He says, he talks about being patient in tribulation. Patience or Patient endurance is, is a better, maybe a better translation. And isn't that great? I mean, is that great to anybody else but me? I just was stopped by that this week. To think that the victorious Christian life is really that nitty-gritty. It's just being able to put up with frustrating people and to be able to sit in the car line at school pickup and not have a meltdown. Because if you can do that, then you can face the really big, scary stuff and be content and joyful. That's patience. And Jonathan stole my thunder. The old word is long-suffering. And I like that so much better, don't you? Isn't that great to think? A spiritual, supernatural, spiritual ability to suffer long, to keep going and, and not get up, give up. It's the opposite of sloth there in verse 11. Sloth is really lacking want to when, when it gets hard. It's, it's giving up too soon. One of the seven deadly sins, if you remember. And man, do you, do you, see, do you see how badly we need this? I mean, we need this. We're so soft. I mean, what a great work of God that he promises here what he's doing by the Spirit to make us able to be uncomfortable and still joyful. Wouldn't that be awesome? Hello? I know it's nine. Wake up. Here we go. Y'all with me? Do we need to do a cheer, calisthenics, something? Okay. Wouldn't it be great? Can you imagine being able to be scared and yet still hopeful? Or really, really uncomfortable, but still full of joy and over a long period of time. You need that. I need that. We need that to flourish. We need it to flourish in marriage. We need it to flourish at work. We need it to flourish in just about everything in this fallen world. So another word for patience here is courage. And Lewis, C.S. Lewis said, if you don't have courage, you won't get any of the other virtues either, because the problem is you'll give up before uh, you, can, you can get any of them. 
you'll, you'll give up before they can really become a part of who you are because courage is the ability to keep pushing through until you learn character. Isn't that what Romans 5 says? The Spirit is at work to renew a people in this world that is hostile to human flourishing, and their defining characteristic is patience. So whatever you ask the Spirit to do in you, ask him for patience. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you think, gosh, I need patience, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Come to Christ. He'll make you a patient person. But the text goes on to show us what these patient people full of spirit fire do, and it really is remarkable here. There are three things, uh, three different directions. Patience is expressed in three different spiritual practices that we can kind of mine out of these few verses here in Romans 12. And the first is that these people that are being described here are people that are able to be patient with God through prayer. Romans 12 too, be constant in prayer is what we're called to. Do you see that? And does that feel daunting to anybody else or just me? This is where you got to kind of nod your head and let me know you're out there, okay? Because I, I, I don't want to feel alone. I mean, it feels completely daunting to me, especially when you consider that it, Paul must be onto something because this isn't the only place where he says something like this. In, in Thessalonians, he says, pray without ceasing. And so this is the common way for the Bible to talk about prayer. Not once a week, not for a few minutes in the morning. It's something you go in and out of all the time, all day long. So one of the marks of a patient person is they do life through prayer. They're always praying. Even when they're not praying, they're praying. What does that mean? Man, that would be so great, wouldn't it? Now notice what's missing. Notice what's missing here. When patience runs into a difficult situation, it runs to the Father. It doesn't say, I gotta fix this, or I've gotta get busy, or this is my problem to solve. That's hardly ever the solution. Really, it usually just leads to discouragement and burnout. And Jesus, instead, Jesus said in Luke 18, he said, you should pray. Prayer is the way that you face tribulation without losing heart. It's the way you stay in the story that God is writing, right? When you face tribulation, it's part of the story. It's not the end of the story. It's, in the, it's the middle of the story. The end, as we'll see in just a minute, we're promised is some unseen, unexpected good that God is working together. But it takes time. It takes time for God to work those things out. It takes millennia for him to work those things out. And so the way you don't lose heart is to stay connected with the Father all the time. All the time. If you don't, you'll inevitably become angry or cynical or controlling. If you do, if you remember that there's a story and the Father is working it out, you'll be full of waiting, watching, wondering, hoping, expecting, full of curiosity about what's coming next. That's patience. Use other names. Use other words. Contentment, peace, whatever word. Prayer is the key. But secondly, not only patient with God through prayer, but... Notice he calls us to patience with fellow Christians, fellow believers through intentional community. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints, he goes on to say. That doesn't sound like what I just said, but the word there is quanonia, and it means to have something in common or to share. And I've always been struck by Ecclesiastes 4, which says, two are better than one. If one falls, the other will lift him up, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. Listen, a piece of advice, you need a people. I don't remember who said it, uh, but the imagery there in Ecclesiastes 4 is the wilderness. And a good rule of thumb is never go into the wilderness alone. You with me? Good rule of thumb. 
I've been talking about hiking the Appalachian Trail for the past year or so, but I can't find anybody to go with me, and I can tell you I'm not going alone. I'm not going alone, right? Too many things could go wrong. I mean, I can end up, I don't want to have to saw my arm off or something like that to get out of, you know, those stories of these people that, like, get lost and have to eat their own eyeballs or whatever it is that happens out there. I don't want, I don't want any part of that. I need somebody there in case I sprain an ankle or something to carry me out, so... I need some beefy people. That would be quite a task. The wilderness is a dangerous place, but listen, so is this world that we travel through. Hostile to human flourishing, so you need someone. You really need a few someones who will be there should you ever fall down and not be able to get yourself back up. That's why, that's why church. But notice, it's not just the fellowship with one another, but, but notice what very clearly, it's fellowship with one another's needs. So it, it means tackling problems together. That's the defining characteristic of, of this, this patient people, of, of the church. In Acts 4, uh, the church is described as having everything in common so that no one said anything of their own things belonged to him, but, but nothing was his own. Uh, but there were no needy persons among them because those who had houses or lands, they sold them, to be distributed, same word, to whoever was in need. Don't, don't dismiss that. Don't dismiss that kind of coming together to share in ways that are significant. That's the kind of community the Spirit is empowering. But thirdly, so be patient with God through prayer and patient with fellow travelers through intentional community, but also we're called to patience with non-Christians through hospitality. So it goes on to say, seek, seek to show hospitality, verse 13. Now, we get this wrong. This is a very specific word. It actually is a buzzword in our culture. Xenophobic. So a xenophobic person means is a person who's afraid or prejudiced towards people who are not like them. People of a different race or a different culture or a different gender or, or now a different sexual orientation. And this is that Greek word. But what happens is instead of the xenophobia here, it's, it's changed. And this is xenophilia. So it literally means the love of the stranger. So biblically, hospitality, Rick, I hate to break it to you, hospitality isn't a barbecue and bourbon with your friends. It's the ability, what, what genuine biblical hospitality is, is it's the ability to put a welcome mat out for people who look different than you and believe different than you and who just generally are different than you and invite them and make room for them in your life. I mean, what a thing, Right? I mean, hospitality means that as a church, we're constantly thinking about who's new to the community, who's the outsider, who needs to be brought in. I mean, who's here for the first time this morning? You know, look around. How, how do we make it easy for people who don't believe yet to come and, and be here and be a part of us? And how do we make it easy for people to integrate into our church? That's hospitality. And in a post-Christian culture, it's how you do evangelism. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield has written a bunch of books. Uh, she's a She's a Reformed Presbyterian lady, but um, she was, years ago, a lesbian college professor in the Northeast <laughs> who, as her testimony goes, she was eventually converted. And here's how she was converted. She was converted because she met a Presbyterian pastor who, who invited her over for dinner. And for a number of years, she just came to his house on a weekly basis to have dinner with he and his wife. And through their hospitality... She came to faith as they debated with her and, and uh, patiently befriended her and evangelized her and opened their life up and said, 
We love having you as a friend. And so she's written a book. I would recommend it to you. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. In other words, the gospel, because of the nature of what it is, should make us people who open our lives up to welcome the other. The defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus. I mean, do you get a sense of how radical this is? Do you get a sense of how expansive what we're talking about is? I mean, the only, the only um, explanation for this kind of ethic that Paul is calling us to here is that the Spirit comes and he comes with fire. Lastly, there's no such thing as half-hearted Christianity because the world is hard. And secondly, because the Spirit is real. C.S. Lewis said, if you become a Christian, you go in for the full treatment. And to explain that, he said, when Jesus said be perfect, he didn't mean you have to be perfect. He meant that the only help he could give you, if he's going to get involved with you, the only way he knows to help you is to make you perfect. So you might think he's coming to kind of tinker around a bit, and then he starts to knock down walls, and it starts to get really painful, and you think, what in the world's going on? When the Spirit comes, he comes with fire. He produces fervent people who serve the Lord. But there's a third reason, and it's the how of everything we've said. And the third reason is that there's no such thing as half-hearted Christianity because, because the time is short. Now, I'm talking about hope again. So if you look there in verse 12, rejoice in hope. This is really the linchpin. It's the key of everything Paul says. And hope is forward-looking. It's the certainty of a good future. Hope is, Paul Tripp says, the, the confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way you live. Hope understands that this world is not all there is, that there is something more. I mean, the Bible calls it heaven or eternal life. In Revelation, it's pictured as a wedding feast and as a final military victory and as a new city and as a garden, which calls to mind what? Eden, Genesis 3. And he says it's on the way. And so hope is the ability to be able to look at whatever's happening right now and know that it's not the end of the story because God is not done yet. Rejoice in hope, we're told here, and it means put your happiness in the future, that there is a glory that is on the way, we're told, that will be so all-encompassing and so great that it will make every affliction seem light and momentary in comparison. The time is short. It won't be very long. And Jesus will come again, as he promised, and the kingdoms of this world, as we read this past week, will become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and he will reign. And we will live forever in a place that is not hostile to our flourishing. Won't that be great? We'll be home. I mean, that is the Christian hope. Jesus Christ has died on the cross, bearing the condemnation and curse of sin, and he has been raised so that the world might be healed, and not too long now. That is our gospel. And hope is the key to both faith and love. That's what we've been talking about this morning, right? Connecting with the Father, connecting with other people. It's the key to both faith and love. Let's talk about each of those just briefly. First, faith. The Bible says that Jesus trusted the Father in hope, that he went into suffering, believing God would raise him from the dead. And Hebrews says that he was able to endure the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He was rejoicing in hope. So the joy of the other was on the other side of his suffering. He had to go through the cross to get to the joy. And he endured, we're told, trusting God to raise him up from the dead and bring him into the joy. Here's the way Paul put it in the, to the Corinthians and to us. He says, if God was faithful to raise him up, then surely he will raise us up too so you can keep trusting him. No matter what tribulation you're going through, hang in there, keep praying. It won't be long. 
Faith is built on hope, but so is love, because every love story is a tale of death and resurrection. Every act of love is self-sacrifice, isn't it? Like Jesus going down into death. Don't water down love. It's a death sentence. Quantity and hospitality, those are hard things. They demand a bunch from you. So where's the power come from for these things? And the Bible says that our love is the echo of God's love, that we love because he first loves, that we share with one another because he has come in the person of Jesus to share with us in our weakness in order to help us, that he has pledged all of his resources and wealth to us so we needn't ever be stingy. And we invite the stranger in because, as the Bible says, we were strangers. And he came to us and invited us in to the very life of the Trinity. We're being called to love the way we've already been loved. And that's the key. So remember how all this starts. Verse 1, therefore, in view of God's mercy, the world is hard, it's true. It is hostile to our flourishing, yes, Jesus was honest enough to say, in this world you will have tribulation. That's what he promised. But do you remember the second part of that phrase? But take heart, for I have overcome the world. In Jesus Christ, the heart of God has triumphed over evil so that even now, even tribulation is mercy. Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, Psalm 23 says. Everything is good and mercy. Only good and mercy. Tomorrow will be goodness and mercy. So cling to God in faith. Love faithfully. Keep going. Because we're told everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is our victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, it seems a small thing that we would pray that you make us patient people, and yet we can't, we can't go very far in this text and realize that maybe that's the key to a lot of things. And so we have to first just start by confessing uh, the root of so many sins in our lives is our impatience, our hurry, our desire to just have it done and over with, to fix it soon so that we don't have to feel the pain we feel. And so we do pray that you give us great grace that we would um, run away from that sense of impatience and run to you instead in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of living in this world that can be so hostile to our, to our flourishing and our good that we would look to you and believe that even here in this, in this wilderness that you provide a shade and a cover. You're our rock that we can hide under to get away from the sun. You are, you are the one who sends streams of living water from which we can drink. You sustain and provide for us in every way. And so we need not... Uh, we need not rush you. We need not rush others. We can just be content and joyful and full of hope in the midst of even trying situations. That's what we so desire. And if we could figure that out, if you could do that work in us, if by the Spirit you could begin to produce that fruit in us, then we would become resilient people who are able to move out into the world that you've called us to love with a new energy and a bold faith and a radical love for others that would um, bring great glory to you because it would be full of fruit that we bear. That's our desire. And so, even as we sing together now, would you do that in us, we pray, so that you might be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so we go now. Uh, we're sent into the world and promised victory, but remember, what that victory looks like is just to be a little slower, just to be a little more able to deal with whatever comes and be patient to look around and to not give up on the people that we love uh, quite as quickly as we're prone to. Wouldn't that be a great work of the Spirit? Well, here's the promise, that as he goes to send you to do that work, his promise is 
that no matter what happens out there, outside these doors this week, he's not going to give up on you. He's not going to grow impatient with you. Uh, every day is full of mercy and goodness for you. And so remember that. Remember these words. And thank you for coming. You get extra Jesus points for being here at 9 o'clock on the first service. So I dispense extra Jesus points to you, but that has nothing to do with these words I'm about to give you, okay? So these are Jesus' words to you and not mine. Uh, take them and hold on to them and grab them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.